how much of this is we've lost our sense that God is building his kingdom every time the word is preached and the yeah, sacraments are yeah, administered. And now are saying, I want something that is visible, that is measurable, that I can see. Successful. I, that it's successful. And you know what all those are? Your works. Right. On this edition of the White Horse Inn, we'll be discussing not the wisdom of men, but the foolishness of God. The White Horse Inn. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition of the early reformers, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hello and welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn. We're continuing our series this year of Christ in a post-Christian culture. And, you know, again and again, the impression is given that uh, Christians in America today are more concerned about transforming the culture than they are about their own faith and practice, about what they believe and, and why they believe it. It seems that if anything is going to be relevant in the church today, it's going to be cultural. It's going to be all about how we can have more of an impact, often translated into power, in the culture around us. And it, it's not necessarily even bad things. It's just that in the process, what actually gets forgotten or taken for granted is, is the gospel. Confessions of faith and doctrinal discussions can't be allowed to take away our energies from transforming the world around us. We need to have these agendas in order to make ourselves feel important, like what we're doing is worthwhile. This is the sort of thing for which we used to criticize the liberals, labeling it the social gospel, but now it's acceptable because it's the right politics. Peter Berger, a Boston University sociologist, where he's also the director of the Institute of the Study of Economic Culture, also happens to be a professing Christian, and in the 1987 Erasmus lecture published in This World, Berger was daring and bold enough to take on the project of challenging the church to return to the true gospel. Different Gospels, the Social Sources of Apostasy, was his title. His arguments are to the point in defining the importance of the gospel and its Babylonian captivity to the modern political culture. He says, The essence of apostasy is always the same, seeking salvation not in the grace of Christ heard with faith, but rather in what Paul calls the works of the law. The specific contents of apostasy, the details of whatever works righteousness is in view, may vary from age to age, but that is its essence. Berger says, this American faith is in jeopardy, so increasingly major religious organizations are serving the function of chaplaincies in these armies, doing what chaplains have always done on battlefields, solemnly blessing the banners of their side and assuring the troops that their cause is God's. Does the church derive its whole identity from the gospel, he asks, and he provides the following answer. It seems to me that we face precisely this question in American Christianity today, nothing less, and it is an awesome question. Compared to this question, the different moral and political options available to us pale, not into insignificance because Christians are in the world and responsible in the world, but into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called penultimacy. The ultimate question 
is the question of salvation. Thus, the issue I want to address is emphatically not the substitution of one cultural or political agenda for another. Rather, it's the issue of placing any such agenda into the place that is reserved to the gospel in the faith and life of the church. Any cultural or political agenda embellished with such authority is a manifestation of works righteousness and ipso facto an act of apostasy. Peter Berger concludes, Democracy or capitalism, or the particular family arrangement of middle-class culture, are not to be identified with the gospel. And neither is any alternative gospel not to defend the American way of life, not to build socialism, not even to build a just society. Because quite apart from the fact that we don't really know what all this is, all our notions of justice are fallible and finally marred by sin. The works righteousness in all these different gospels lies precisely in the insinuation that if we only do this or refrain from doing that, we will be saved, that is justified. But as Paul tells us, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Amazing! It is really remarkable. In this program, we're going to be discussing the foolishness of God, the way that God, in his deepest foolishness, is Hmm. higher than all of the so-called wisdom of human learning, the way God's weakness trumps humans' strength, and the way God's plan of redemption outstrips all of the purposes, plans, and strategies of this present age. And uh, once again, to discuss these topics are Kim Riddlebarger, pastor of Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California, Rod Rosenblatt, professor of theology at Concordia University in Irvine, Ken Jones, pastor of Greater Union Baptist Church in Compton, California, and I'm Mike Horton. I teach at Westminster Seminary in California. You know, this is, when we're talking about transforming the culture, the church's great mission is to transform culture. In the light of what we said in the last program, I'd encourage people to listen to to the last program because it's connected to what we're talking about here. The light of our last program, talking about this whole history of redemption, where you have the city of God as the city of man in Eden, and then they split apart after the fall, sort of fulfilling their own distinct ends, both under God's sovereignty, Mm -hmm. yet in different ways, one by common grace, one by saving grace, and then come together in Israel, And then after the exile, split again, Mm -hmm. as like Adam, Israel is thrown out of the garden. And then we'll come back together one day when Jesus returns, finally and forever, to make the kingdoms of this world the kingdom of God. But but Uh, in in that chain of events... Uh, before the second coming, as they are scattered, first uh, as as Israel is kicked out of uh, the land of of Canaan, there is another point, a vital link, and that is the first coming, of the the, the first coming of the second Adam, uh, and then of course, uh, and and during that period, that that interim between the first and second coming is this gathering, this regathering yep. from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, into mm-hmm. the body of the one who has come the first time uh, in sacrifice, who will then come in his second, in, in the second advent, in triumph. Then you won't have any question about whether CNN will be interested. <laughs> yeah. Oh, now, the, now the kingdom of Christ yeah. does not garner the attention of the media. Yeah. And or, whatever we do to try to garner the attention of the media with our visible world-transforming enterprises is probably the least connected with Christ. Mm-hmm. Yep. As uh, one uh, radical 
group in the early 70s, uh, music group, uh, The Last Poets. Gil Scott Heron says the revolution won't be televised, uh-huh. and neither will the second coming. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. the, the city of God really doesn't, I mean, isn't this one of the reasons why we have trouble focusing on the city of God? Because when we're talking about world transformation, we're really talking about the cultural mandate that God gave to humanity in the garden, which isn't the proper preserve of the church mm-hmm. it is the proper preserve of everyone created yeah, in the yeah. image of god yeah. and even when it includes christians it includes christians in their secular cult well, oh that's a good point i i think when people hear us being critical of the christian impulse to transform culture what we're not being critical of is the natural impulse that God has built into us to transform our proper sphere of influence. Our mm-hmm. proper sphere of influence is our calling and our vocation. Sure. If we are called to be a civil engineer, then we should do that with excellence and build the best possible things that humans can build. Sure. That's what Paul and, says. And, and, and to do so in sure. such a way that our calling as a civil engineer brings glory to God, and and also gives us credibility when we speak to our fellow citizens as Christians, that they acknowledge that that person is very competent, that person has right. kind of an integrated mm-hmm. world and life view, that person goes to church. I wonder what it is about them. Right. Instead of thinking that the church ought to be out closing down all the theaters in which R-rated well, movies are sure. playing. That's, or, sure. that's the difference. Or making all the movies. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. <laughs> that's the difference. But in response to that, Uh, God bless you for saying it, because I think that needs to be said a lot. But the other thing is, I was telling my classes the other day, when we get into something like the Christian life, or almost any other subject, we find subjects there that really pique our interest. Mm -hmm. But if we have a study of the ways in which the cross works, or the person of Christ was both God and man in a hypostatic union, everybody's bored. Mm-hmm. But in, in addition to, I think, the way people are misunderstanding us when we speak against the idea of the church's role to transform the culture, they're also assuming that we are uh, saying that Christians should not be engaged in relieving suffering in this world, that we are not community um, or... or um, civic-minded, outreach-minded, uh, yeah. outreach minded, uh, in whatever area, whether it's the homeless, whether it's the hungry, and so forth. And we're not saying that. We're saying that, that Christians can and should be involved. I just think of what you do through Rafiki. Yeah, Heavenly days. And- but, you know, th- there are things, there are many things in which we can be engaged in, should be engaged in, in relieving the uh, the suffering that takes place in this world, but it doesn't always have to be in the name of the church. See, that's, th- part of it for me at least is that there's a kind of hubris that says the church is the answer to all of the world's ills. And I have to say, you know, for instance, with Rick Warren's peace plan, there, you can't help but admire the zeal of Rick Warren and others to try to relieve the world's poverty. But this happens periodically in history where the church thinks that there's something about Christians and the church that makes us the most likely candidates for alleviating the misery of the world. When in, in actual fact, you know, the church has often done that, and the church has also often caused a lot of the misery in the world. Yeah. Uh-huh. There, it's a mixed history here, 
everything we've said so far in trying to build the, the biblical theological categories suggests that Christians can really mess up culture uh-huh. sometimes, uh-huh. and non-Christians can sometimes really do a bang-up job with culture. Mm-hmm. And so the, the church shouldn't see itself as an expert in any way, shape, or form on how to build an ideal culture. Christians, shaped by the gospel, can go into these fields and be moms, dads, aunts, uncles, little league coaches, community organizers, community organizers, engineers, truck drivers, politicians, yeah. You name it and be salt and light where they are. And yeah, that's a lot humbler than saying, uh, you know, come be a part of my movement. Mm -hmm. But over the long haul, the things that really do preserve, and that's what salt does, really do preserve, act as a preservative in the culture, are things that are done over a long period of time, not flash-in-the-pan works that the church in the name of the church tries to accomplish for God. Part of the problem, I think, is that Christians don't always know how to cooperate with non-Christians when it comes to doing community good because they think they're doing the work of of God, or they think they are doing the work that the church has been called to do. And for whatever reason, that's all of a sudden when they get a a doctrinal conscience and they don't want to work with non-believers or atheists or or, um, Muslims when it comes to community good. And I don't think that's the biblical model. How, How much of this has to do with the fact that the first layer of evangelical theology is Anabaptist? So the first a lot of it. The first layer is a basic mm. almost manichaean opposition between light and darkness, yeah. believers and unbelievers. Mm-hmm. But then on top of that, ironically, a kind of worldliness that says this means that I can't have secular entertainment. I need mm-hmm. to create a Christian right. subculture of entertainment. I can't have Secular sports, I have to have Christian sports. So you end up creating for everything in the world a Christian version of mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And ironically, we're of the world, but not in it. Yeah. We're worldly, and yet we're not actually in the world. Right. Yeah. That was Ken Meyer's point. That's a really, really insightful comment. I, I think there's another piece of the pie that we have to talk about and I don't want to impugn anybody's motives because this is a, this is hard to say but if you look at the course of redemptive history you know you you have Israel while in Canaan which is in many ways parallel to our situation today we're the people of God living in a land that is every bit as pagan as, as Canaan was the constant temptation for the Israelites was their religion was peculiar and their kids couldn't do the things the Canaanite kids could do and so they always felt strange. They always felt the antithesis between their biblical faith and Baal worship. And, and so the Israelites were constantly drawn back. We want to go to your site. We'll worship Yahweh, but we want to go to your high place. There's always that tendency to soften the edge so that we're not viewed with as much disdain. Yeah. And so Israel was always being pulled toward, we want to be like the Gentiles. We, we don't want to become Gentiles, but we, we're, we're tired of constantly feeling estranged from them. The exclusiveness. The exclusiveness. And so you get this this tension with a lot of evangelicals. We want to be important, too. 
Mm-hmm. We want to show how impact we can make, and it isn't because they're they're intentionally capitulating to the spirit of the right. age. But the minute you start thinking that way, you have capitulated to the spirit of the age. Yeah. So what we're encouraging people to do is do your vocation and get noticed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly yeah, right. Do it well. And make sure that you go to a church where your pastor isn't trying to do your vocation for you. Right? Exactly. Where, where he's doing his vocation, yeah. which is to be in his study, preparing a meal from God's word and feeding you with Christ through word and sacrament and shaping your life so that you are transformed by the renewing of your mind instead of being conformed to this world's way of thinking. And then you go out and you apply Christianity to your vocation. You find out how the doctrine of creation transforms your view of what you're doing out there. You're listening to the White Horse Inn. We're talking about the foolishness of God as revealed in the gospel of Christ. Back in a minute. The White Horse Inn is a listener-supported broadcast. For more information about our work, head to whitehorseinn.org. You'll find a lot of articles and book recommendations, information about upcoming events, and also our various support programs. If you're new to the program, sign our online guest book, and we'll send you a free CD and sample copy of our magazine, Modern Reformation. The address, again, is whitehorseinn.org. That's whitehorseinn.org. It's a sad fact that many Christians are confused about crucial matters, such as what the gospel is, how sinners are right with God, and what it means to preach Christ. Westminster Seminary, California, is committed to helping you sort through all the confusion and to give you confidence in the good news. Westminster Seminary, California, 1-888-480-8474, wscal.edu. Back to White Horse Inn as we're discussing God's foolishness. I've used the example of uh, of William Wilberforce and uh, John Newton. John Newton, the famous author of Amazing Grace, was an Anglican minister, and he had been a slave trader. And when he was converted, he thought very seriously about going into politics to end the slave trade, but instead became a minister and uh, look at the, the great impact that he had as a minister of the gospel. And Newton had someone in his congregation named William Wilberforce, whom he helped lead to Christ in the first place. And Wilberforce was also interested in ending the slave trade. And he uh, uh, told Newton he wanted to go into the ministry, too. Mm -hmm. And Newton never preached on slavery from the pulpit except when it popped up in the scriptures, sure. when, when it was there to deal with. He focused on preaching the gospel. And William Wilberforce was so powerfully shaped by that. He said, I want to be a pastor, too. I want to go into the ministry. And Newton said, of course you can't co- go into the ministry. First of all, you don't have the gifts for pastoral ministry. You are You live the active life, not the contemplative life. I can't see you in the study. I see you in, in a chamber getting things done in Parliament. You need to go into politics. And, of course, William Wilberforce did and ended up ending the, slave, the British slave trade. Now, that is a great... Slowly. E- slowly. Yeah, slowly. 
But that is a great example. Yeah, and we've got these triumphant examples. Not all of them are triumphant. Uh, A lot of times it's more like not seeing very much fruit in your work, but saying, I I still was doing what God had called me to do. But here's an instance where it's very clear that they were both fulfilling what they were made for, the calling that God had made them for, that he had equipped them for, One wasn't higher than the other. One was holy, the holy office of the ministry. One was common, the common grace realm of parliament. And yet, each in their own ways contributed to the welfare of both cities, of both kingdoms. And, And, of course, the impetus for that is... The proclamation of the word. That's what prodded mm-hmm. I, I, both one uh, for that type of service. It's what it's, it's as Christ was presented in the gospel that urged them, that spurred, uh, spurred them on to be more involved in serving their fellow man, especially sure. as sure. it relates to the issue of slavery. It's just and, and again, that wasn't that wasn't what the, the preaching wasn't. OK, you must go out and do this, that and the other. The preaching was what God had given in the person and work of Christ, which prompted in them to look at things within their uh, in their their society that were wrong, and they were spurred to do something about it. John Newton could say, "Hey, you guys, go start your Clapham group. Your your meeting where you, you know you're all meeting in the evenings to talk about." How to reform English culture and society. That's great. That's perfectly. But it's interesting that that wasn't done under the auspices of the church. The church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And right. yeah. Newton wasn't present there right. as the chaplain of that <laughs> ministry. It was seen as very important yeah. work of Christians in the civil sphere working side by side with non-Christians. We have to have confidence in the sufficiency and the efficacy of God's word, that it will accomplish what he says it would accomplish if we as preachers would just preach it. Yeah. Well, that's it, Ken. I I think so many of the people listening to this, we've talked about this subject many times in in the history of the White House, and I remember back in the old days when we did a live call-in show from broadcasting live from Hollywood, and we would talk about, Calling in vocation, and we would the the lights on the phone would look like a Christmas tree just almost immediately because people were torn. They, they sensed a love of their secular calling, and then felt guilty because they loved yeah. their secular calling. When you would yeah. explain to them, no, 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 yeah. no, that's what God's called you to. God right. smiles when you fulfill your. You could almost hear them sigh in relief. Absolutely, yeah. and, and I think that's that's Mike's point. That it, when the men, things, it, I would love to have that sixteenth century history. At least on our side of the fence, what really, really, really brought down a kind of a, a sick medievalism was the preaching of salvation or justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. But the one that really affected the society of the medieval ages was the doctrine of vocation. Yeah. Where, yeah. Where Luther would say that the bootmaker is yep. doing more than the monk. In just making a good quality boat. That's what really had the effect. Well, it was American, connected to the rediscovery yeah. of justice. Sure, yeah. sure and, it was. And if American ministers sure. would, would go back to doing that and to teach the doctrine of vocation and to quit getting in the pulpit and telling them that they're going to take America back, I mean, we'd have the, some huge changes in the culture. This, yes. Here's the irony of it all. You look at the medieval church, and it was about as totally corrupt hmm. as you could imagine. I mean, I could read a passage from Ratzinger, the, now the current Pope Benedict, where he says exactly the same thing. He says, uh, you know, I'm not going to hand a free one here to the Protestants, but, hey, the late Middle Ages, 
the popes had to put a moratorium on the starting of new monastic orders because every time there was a new monastic order to sort of separate from an increasingly worldly, culturally corrupt church, that order would overnight become part of the corruption. Mm. And it became so worldly that people became cynical about the church. So here's a church that really wanted to run the culture. Here's a church that thought we are going to transform the culture and ended up being the most worldly church imaginable. Then you have the Reformation, and the Reformers never set out to transform the culture at all. Uh They rediscovered the gospel and preached that every week from Genesis to Revelation, administered the sacraments, had a, a sense of care and concern for the poor in their midst and so forth. Basically, in other words, the church started doing its job again, mm-hmm. and, and it was, had yeah. huge, huge effects. Yeah. Every huge. historian on the planet yeah. will talk about the sweeping effects of yep. the Reformation in the arts, in literature, in education, in science, in medicine, medicine, <laughs> in the family, in in every sphere. Well, mm-hmm. it's pretty hard for us to talk about taking America back when the divorce rate among evangelicals is as higher, higher as in the outside the church. Yep. When we have our our pastors are known for their scandals, mm. you know, you just go down the list. It's a little hard for us to be morally uppity right now when our track record is so abysmal. Even that wouldn't bring everything down. Bad as it is, if our Reformation churches had the reputation of doing what was being well, that's done, it. then right, right. that's and it. That's even more serious. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I've I've mentioned this before, but. Um, I have people that will ask me, because of where our church is located, what kind of programs do you have uh, in your church? And we have a few things that we do, but one of the things that got my attention is a few years ago when they were having uh, mayoral elections in in the city of Compton, um, and again, the question would come up, well, what is your church doing? And I, and I happened to notice that we had, I think, four block club presidents in our church, and a block club is is a coalition of, of citizens that live in a particular neighborhood where they get together, perform neighborhood watch, and just kind of uh, act as a liaison between the community and the police department. Well, we had four block club leaders that were members of our congregation, and the person that was the um, moderator for the mayoral debates was a member of our church. None of these things were done as programs or outreach mm-hmm. from the church but it was individuals who were members of our congregation making their contribution to the city of Compton as residents of the city of Compton, not as representatives of of Greater Union Baptist Church. You lost a great PR opportunity there, Ken. Yeah, we did. (laughs) And don't you think, to put the best construction on it, that a lot of people, when they're doing this, they're not saying, I want our church to get the credit for this. I want it to be on the news that we did some great things, but rather when a cup of cold water is being offered, I want it to be offered in the name of the gospel. When in in actual fact, I mean, that motive is perfectly understandable and the church does have a diaconal charitable role to play, but that really we should be telling people that then look, Certainly do that in your neighborhood. Offer a cup of cold water in the name of Christ. Certainly care for your brothers and sisters who are suffering in the body of Christ. But be concerned about people out there who are not just a mission field to you, but who deserve your neighborliness, your love and your friendship just because they are 
bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. They are fellow human beings. God made them in his image. And you can work side by side in the Peace Corps Mm -hmm. or in Red Cross. You don't need to start your own evangelical world relief organization. There are plenty of them out there already where you're not raising money again to duplicate another bureaucracy. Go be a part of those things, and you'll be working side by side with non-Christians in those volunteer organizations in a way that not only gives you an opportunity to do good mm-hmm. to the people you're serving, but also to explain to your non-Christian co-workers in those organizations why you're doing what you're doing. I, I think there's an identity crisis among evangelicals. We feel that we have to justify our existence, and we are not confident that preaching the gospel is enough to justify our existence. Yeah, no. yeah. We're not happy being the church. We've got yeah, to be we, something well, else. We have to be transformative. Part of it might be uh, because we have so many church buildings that we have to justify our being in existence as opposed to the church down mm. the street. Uh, Part of it is because uh, people have looked at the church as being somewhat parasitic within uh, the culture. The only thing you do is meet and and, and speak and and collect money. I don't know, but but I think there's something that uh, there are a number of things that are contributing to uh, a failing identity crisis. And and we feel the burden of, quote unquote, ministering to the whole man and justifying our existence by contributing something worthwhile to. Uh, to the community, not realizing that when we feed the people of God with the word of God, right that on. is the best contribution yeah. right we can make on. Exactly. in this exactly. fallen world. Right and, you know, and that gives people identity. Mm-hmm. Yes. We yeah. can't expect people to, to understand calling and vocation or two kingdoms if their ministers are telling them to take America back. Sure, sure. How much of this, too, is, you know, William Willimon's comment again, that we've lost, having lost our confidence in, in the power of our story to create the world of which it speaks, we start using other stories to get the job done. How much of this is we've lost our sense that God is building his kingdom every time the word is preached and the sacraments are administered. And now are saying, look, I want something that is visible, that is measurable, that I can see. Successful. That it's successful. And you know what all those are? Your works. Right. So basically, you're going to build your kingdom by your works through the things that you can see instead of receiving a kingdom, as the writer of the Hebrews calls it, receiving a kingdom, being grateful for receiving the kingdom. You know, what's my part? Be grateful, he says. (laughs) Gratefully receiving a kingdom, gratefully worshiping God for receiving a kingdom, and being shaped by that ministry of word and sacrament. In other words, would things change if we believed that the most important thing in any week, the most important meeting, the most important activity was not ours, but God's. And it was happening down the street through these extraordinarily weak vessels. Uh Well, and, and if that's the message, if you're saying that the most important thing that the church can do is to administer word and sacrament, then we, we must put an exclamation point there and not a comma that's followed by a but. Uh-huh. And that's yeah. what contemporary evangelicals, even point. even Reformed Christians uh-huh. will do. Yes, it's good to preach and it's yeah, good yeah. to well, yeah, yeah. sure, of course. but right. and the moment you enter yeah. that, that world of uh-huh. but, 
you you really start <laughs> overshadowing sure. everything that you said about the efficacy and the sufficiency yeah, yeah, of word. I mean, well, didn't Luther say in one of his sermons that I could have brought down the whole papacy? I was at the point where every German peasant was listening to me. And he says, I could have brought down the whole papacy right then and there by one word, but I didn't because it's not by might. It's not by power. And he says, you want to know how all of this happened? The word did it all while Melanchthon and I were down at the pub having mm. good German beer. <laughs> yep. 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 Exactly right. See, that that's confidence in the word. That's really believing. You know what? I don't know it. I don't see it. I can't measure it. Right. But the promise says But the promise says that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm going to hold on to that promise and keep doing next week what I've done this week. Yep. Yep. And if there's any way I can do it more effectively, please tell me, but if it takes away from that, uh-huh. I'm not interested. Well, and and see as as you said, uh, that has to be our confidence because otherwise ministers are left to evaluate their effectiveness by what they see in other organizations, other churches, and they will think they need to come up with a bigger vision, a better program, or something else that is more pragmatic or practical. And the elders might be right behind them saying... We'll help you. Exactly. We'll help yes. shoving them yes. to do it. Oh, yep. yeah. And they don't, they don't, what they don't see is the spirit of worldliness yep. that yeah. is really yeah. the seed of that sort of thinking. Exactly. Yeah. The contrast between what the world sees as really accomplishing something and what we are given, yep. the preaching of Christ mm-hmm. and pouring of water. And of wine and bread, what the contrast silly. is so yes. great. So stark. When when a person has been working all week long at raising children, taking them to, to school, to games, to you know all kinds of things that they can measure and say, wow, this has been a full week, where you have business people who've cut all kinds of deals that week, and they could measure their success that week. You're telling them to come into a building, to sit down in a pew <laughs> next to a bunch of other people who probably aren't as successful as you are, and you're going to receive the greatest gift in the universe <laughs> <laughs> by somebody up there talking who doesn't know half mm-hmm. of the way the world works that you do, yep. uh-huh. but is just speaking from a script he's been given. <laughs> And he's going to sprinkle some water on some kids. Infants. <laughs> or put them in a whole pool of water. Wow. That's fine. If you want to put the, the baby in the water, I'd be happy with that. Fine. Just get your babies in the water, kid. Yeah. That's all we're asking. Yeah. I don't care if it's a tub or a yeah. uh, garden hose. Faucet hose. Yeah. Faucet. <laughs> and uh, that stuff just, you're not really expecting me to believe that, are you? Mm. You're not really yeah. expecting me to believe after the week I've just had, gotten off of like three planes this week. Yep. You're really going to tell me that that's powerful. Uh-huh. Yes, we are. Yep, we that's, are going to say that's that. That's what we're saying. And we're going to say it a lot, and we're going to say it over and over and over again in Every different Lord's ways. Day. And we're going to use different paragraphs from this book to say it. And it'll sound different, but it's going to be back to that same story. That's what you're in for. 
And that's the encouragement that I would give to any pastor. Yeah. Don't get diverted. Don't allow anyone to, to tell you that you need to spice it up. Yeah. It can't get any better than what God has given us in Christ. Mm-hmm. And he has given us the privilege of announcing what he has done in his son. No one else has he given that calling to. He's given it to you. Yeah. Say it and be confident in it. Well, folks, there is a lot more for us to cover, and we will be covering it over the next uh several weeks, and uh, we're trying in, in various ways to get a, an overview of the relationship between Christ and culture and the great truths of the Christian faith that help us think through that relationship so that we can be more effective witnesses to Christ in a post-Christian culture. Look forward to being with you again next time on The White Horse Inn. The White Horse Inn is a listener-supported broadcast. Give us a call at 1-800-890-7556 to become an innkeeper, and you'll begin receiving every White Horse Inn broadcast on CD each month, along with our magazine, Modern Reformation. Sign up as an architect or reformer, and you'll receive the extended edition of each program, plus bonus interviews, lectures, and broadcasts on four CDs each month. The number again is 1-800-890-7556, or head to our website, whitehorseinn.org. If you're new to the White Horse Inn, simply sign our online guest book for a free CD and sample copy of our magazine. Once again, the address is whitehorseinn.org.